Welcome to the Diabetes and Food Podcast, powered by Diabetes Qualified. Thanks for listening today. I'm Melissa Hay from Diabetes New South Wales and ACT. I'm an accredited practicing dietitian myself, uh, but with me today to help answer some of those tough food questions is Kate Goodoff. Kate is both an accredited practicing dietitian and a credentialed diabetes educator. So she's an expert in all things nutrition and diabetes. In today's podcast, we're going to explore some of those common questions and myths that come up about food and diabetes and sort fact from fiction. So welcome, Kate. It's lovely to have you here today. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for inviting me to talk with you today. So we'll get straight into it, Kate. We hear so much about diet and nutrition in the popular media, and we get so many questions about food from people living with diabetes who are frankly confused. One thing we continue to hear is that people with diabetes believe they need to follow a special diabetes diet. Can you please clear this one up for our listeners? Is this one fact or fiction? Great question. Um, And I hear this all of the time as well, but I can assure you that this is definitely fiction. So there's no special diet for people living with diabetes. Um, That can really surprise some people because there's this assumption that people living with diabetes need to eat more healthy foods or eat generally healthier than other people. But the reality is that all Australians are encouraged to eat the same way, which is um, following the same healthy eating guidelines. Fantastic. So what you're saying, Kate, is that the healthy eating guidelines are the same for people with and without diabetes. Yes, that's exactly right. Same guidelines. Fantastic. So can you tell us maybe what some of those healthy eating guidelines might entail? So a really good place to start is the Australian Dietary Guidelines. Um, And what that shows is it shows the five healthy food groups, uh, which are whole grains, fruits, vegetables, dairy foods, um, and protein foods. Now, the guidelines encourage that all Australians eat a variety of foods from the five food groups and limit something called discretionary foods. Those are the junk foods that don't fit into those core food groups. So those are things like cakes and biscuits and takeaway and lollies and soft drink. So those are the general healthy eating guidelines, and they apply to all Australians. But I should point out that sadly, Australians are not very good at following the healthy eating guidelines. Um, and what we know is that only about 7% of Australians are meeting the current recommendations for vegetables every day. And only about half of us are, eat, are meeting the recommendations for fruit every day. And about a third of Australians' energy intake is coming from discretionary foods. So like those takeaway foods, biscuits, cakes. Um, So while there's not a special diet for people living with diabetes, um, what I find is that people living with diabetes are more aware of what they need to eat. They often know how food affects their body if they're they're checking their blood glucose levels, but we all need to um, improve our diets, maybe include more fruits and vegetables as well. Um, But what about low-carb diets? There's been a lot of talk about low-carb diets, particularly in the last few months, um, being the way to go maybe for people with diabetes, especially in terms of managing blood glucose levels. So what are your thoughts about low-carb diets? Interestingly, Diabetes Australia just recently released a position statement on low-carbohydrate eating for people living with diabetes. And what this position statement shows is that We do see some benefits for people living with type 2 diabetes um, following a low-carbohydrate diet up to about six months. And so what we see is that for people with type 2 diabetes, when they go on to a low-carbohydrate diet, that can help them reduce their blood glucose levels, reduce their body weight, manage risk factors for heart disease, so things like cholesterol and blood pressure. So there are some benefits 
We also see benefits with other styles of eating as well. So like the Mediterranean diet shows quite similar benefits. Um, so it's not necessarily just the low carbohydrate diet. It could be a result of dieting in general. Mm. Now that said, there's a few caveats when it comes to low carbohydrate eating. And that's that these diets are not recommended for um, certain groups of people. So it's not recommended for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. It's not recommended for anyone with liver or kidney failure young children, those with a history of disordered eating. And there's really not good evidence to recommend the use of low-carb diets for people with type 1 diabetes. And then, of course, there's some side effects that come with going on to a low-carb diet. So people often feel tired, they feel weak, they get headaches or nausea. And you're also restricting the amount of good fiber that's available for the gut bacteria in our digestive system. So that gut bacteria really thrives on um, those sources of fiber to feed and populate and grow. And if we're depriving our body of that good fiber, um, then we can often see a change in our gut bacteria. So it's really important that anyone wanting to go onto a low-carb diet speak with their doctor or their diabetes team, um, that they understand the, the side effects, that they understand whether they're at risk for things like hypos, whether they need to adjust their medication if they're going on to this style of eating, and also that they speak to a dietitian to understand how they can continue to meet their nutritional needs while maintaining their blood glucose levels and their overall health. So, so much to consider really. And as health professionals, sometimes we can get so focused on what the blood glucose levels are doing that we can forget that overall picture of general health, which is so important as well. Now, there's also some growing research that maybe carbs aren't all we need to think about when we're looking at managing blood glucose levels, um, particularly those post-meal blood glucose levels. And there's some research coming out around that maybe protein and fat might also play a role. So would you be able to touch on some of the research around this? Yep. This is really interesting, and it is very um, new research. But what we're seeing is that the old thinking was that carbohydrate foods were all we really had to worry about um, in terms of the foods that raise our blood glucose levels. But what we now know is that protein and fat also can affect our blood glucose levels. And the effect is much more pronounced for people with type 1 diabetes. So this generally doesn't apply to um, people living with type 2 diabetes because they have enough insulin function that they don't notice the this, this same effect. But for people with type 1 diabetes, there certainly is an effect of protein and fat on their blood glucose levels. So we know that fat slows down how quickly food digests. Um, so it slows down gastric emptying. Um, and that initially will reduce our blood glucose levels. So in the early postprandial period, we'll see a delay in our peak blood glucose levels. But in the late postprandial period, so after about three hours of a high fat meal, we see that the fat causes sustained hyperglycemia, or you'll see blood glucose levels over a longer period of time. Now, protein doesn't seem to have the, the, it has a similar effect. Um, so protein will begin to increase blood glucose levels after about an hour to an hour, hour and a half. Um, so a little bit earlier than the fat will. Um, but then like fat, it will cause that sustained hyperglycemia. So you'll still see that elevated rise in blood glucose levels over a longer period of time. So to give you an idea of how much is needed to see this effect, um, you only need about 30 grams of protein. Uh, to influence blood glucose levels. So that's about 100 grams of raw uh, meat or chicken or fish. So it's not a lot, really, um, considering that that might be a standard serving size that somebody eats, if not more. Um, so it only takes about 100 grams of meat or chicken or fish to see that rise in prolonged hyperglycemia. 
Now, if somebody eats a meal that doesn't include carbohydrate, um, then you need a little bit more protein, about 75 grams of protein to have a significant effect on your blood glucose levels. Um, so a little bit more than double the portion uh, in order to see that prolonged hyperglycemia. Mm. So what does this mean for people with type 1 diabetes? If we're thinking about carb counting, it's already a really quite arduous process that people are having to go through when they're trying to manage their insulin dosing, their blood glucose levels. Are we looking at a future where people with type 1 diabetes are going to have to be counting carbs, fats and protein? So right now we're still in the research phases and we don't have guidelines for bolusing or injecting insulin um, for protein and fat. And what we do know is that it's a bit of an individual thing. So for some people, they are more sensitive to fat and protein. And so we really encourage people to work with their diabetes team, like their diabetes educator and their dietitian, to determine um, whether they need to bolus for high protein, high fat meals and how much to bolus. Um, so for right now, carb counting is still the gold standard. It's still the way to go. But you know, take an individualized approach. Mm -hmm. And that individualized approach is so important. It's come up already a couple of times. I'm sure it'll come up again. What about fiber? How does fiber impact on diabetes management? Uh, so fiber is interesting. So, I mean, before we even jump into the diabetes management, um, fiber has so many health benefits. Um, so first of all, it feeds that gut bacteria that we were mentioning earlier. Mm. That gut bacteria thrives on fiber, um, and then that populates your gut and gives you a nice, strong, healthy immune system. Um, it also prevents constipation. Uh, certain types of fiber can lower cholesterol levels. Um, fiber is also important for weight management because it helps you feel fuller after a meal. Um, and it's also linked with a reduced risk of certain types of chronic diseases like certain types of cancer and heart disease. So lots of benefits to have a higher fiber diet. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to just diabetes management, it helps to lower the glycemic index of a meal. So fiber helps to slow digestion of food. And the more slowly your food digests, the more gradual the rise in your blood glucose levels. So that's especially beneficial for people living with diabetes. Now, interestingly, we're learning more about these incretin hormones, which are those... Um, uh, little hormones that live in our gut that signal our pancreas to begin producing insulin in response to food. So one of those incretin hormones uh, is GLP-1, and um, GLP-1 is influenced by a higher fiber diet. So the types of fiber and foods that you're eating can affect that GLP-1 hormone secretion in the gut. So that means that, you know, if you have a healthier diet with more fiber in it, you may potentially improve your postprandial blood glucose levels. And that's pretty important too, isn't it, for people absolutely. with diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's an important strategy. And not just for people with diabetes, as we mentioned, there's so many benefits to fiber for all Australians. Mm, absolutely. So can you give us some practical suggestions that we might be able to offer the people we see to help them boost their fiber intake and get some of these benefits? An easy place to start is choose whole grains over processed grains. So something like a whole grain bread instead of white bread. Add more fruits and vegetables. So fruits and vegetables are an excellent source of fiber. You might aim to include more as many vegetables as you can with your meals. But also think about snacks. Um, you can have vegetables as snacks. You know, chop up some carrot sticks with hummus or some cucumber with hummus. Lentils and legumes are another excellent source of fiber. Um, you can add those things to salads. You can add them to casseroles. You can add them to um, even your bolognese. And you might also try to have a handful of nuts or seeds as a snack. Or again, that's something you can toss into a salad or a stir fry just to add a bit of extra fiber. 
I should mention the Diabetes Qualified website has a really good webinar series on fiber, um, which goes into a lot more detail on this topic and the importance of fiber in the diet. So you mentioned earlier, Kate, how lower GI foods can help in managing blood glucose levels slowing down the digestion of those carbohydrate foods. I find this is one of the most common changes that people with diabetes tend to have already made before they even see us. So they've made an attempt to, to choose lower GI options. Is simply following a low GI diet enough to manage diabetes? Unfortunately, um, there's so much more to diabetes management than just choosing low GI foods. It is a good place to start but it's important to consider many more aspects of, of your diet. So GI, it measures the quality of your carbohydrates. So it measures um, how quickly your carbohydrates will um, affect your blood glucose levels. But we also need to consider the quantity of carbohydrate we're eating and the timing of the foods that we're eating. GI, as I mentioned, it just means that your blood glucose levels, when you're choosing low GI foods, it means that your blood glucose levels are not going to spike as much as when you're choosing high GI foods. The low GI foods tend to digest more slowly, which then means that the rise in your blood glucose levels is also um, a bit more gradual. Now, GI is important, but if you're choosing, for example, a low GI bread, like a whole grain bread instead of white bread, if you're eating five or six slices, you're still going to see quite a significant rise in your blood glucose levels. So it's still very important to consider the quantity. And that's where we really want to be mindful of portion size and not just the, the quality of the carbohydrate. And lastly, what we tend to see is that when people spread their carbs throughout the day, rather than just having them um, at one meal, that that keeps their um, blood glucose levels more stable, and it also keeps their energy levels more stable as well. The other thing I should mention is GI is just one measure of a food, so it's only measuring how that food affects your blood glucose levels after you've eaten. It doesn't tell us about the overall nutritional quality of a food. So, for example, ice cream is low GI. Do we want people to choose ice cream all the time? No. Um, no. So ice cream is still a treat food. Um, it's still something that should only be eaten sometimes and in small amounts. So yes, ice cream won't spike your blood glucose as much as like a lolly might, but um, it's still a treat food. Great advice. Thank you, Kate. And a really good summary. Um, this one's a little bit more left field. There has been a bit of research that's been quite interesting out and about lately that it's not just what people are eating, but how they're eating their meals as well that might impact their blood glucose levels. Can you touch on some of this research briefly for us? Yeah, so this is really interesting. There was a small study that was recently published in Diabetes Care, and what that showed is that when you eat the protein and vegetable portion of your meal first, the rise in your blood glucose levels following that meal was significantly reduced than when the carbohydrate portion was eaten first. So they measured people's blood glucose levels after eating the protein and veg portion first, and then they repeated that same experiment, but they had the um, participants eat the carbohydrate portion first. And when the protein and veg portion was eaten first, the rise in blood glucose levels was so significantly reduced that it was it was results that are typically seen with the addition of um, diabetes medication. Wow. So, yeah, so quite a significant reduction in the postprandial blood glucose levels. Now, that said, it was a very small study, and the measurements were only taken at 30, 60, and 120 minutes after the meal. So we really don't know how that will translate into 
improvements in a HbA1c, so the average blood glucose over three months. You know, would would those results translate to a lower HbA1c? We don't really know. We don't really know if it translates to a larger group of people because it was such a small study. But I think there's some interesting takeaways that we can take from this study, and that's that maybe you don't need to wait 15 minutes to begin eating your carbohydrate portion of your meal because maybe just by eating the protein and veg portion first or possibly even just starting with the veg portion, eating that first and then moving on to your protein and carbohydrate portion, you can fill up on those really important uh, vegetables before you touch your carbohydrate portion. And that might just help you with weight management and it might also help you reduce your postprandial blood glucose levels. And you mentioned earlier too with the fiber in the veggies lowering the glycemic index of the meal, so it might also help to slow down the digestion of that carbohydrate once you finally get to it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, some takeaways from that study, even if um, even if the study itself wasn't very large. Yeah, absolutely. And some and practical tips too, because sometimes clients find it really difficult to make big changes, particularly if they're new and they're quite overwhelmed with a lot of choices and changes in their lifestyle. So sometimes something like this, where they're not necessarily changing a whole lot about what they're eating, just the way they're eating their meal could be a really good place for people to start. So last question for you, Kate. I couldn't leave this one out because it comes up all of the time. So I often hear people um, who've been told to cut out sugar, whether that be from a well-meaning friend, a family member, they've heard it on the media or even in some cases, a health professional's told them a GP or someone else. So can you please clear this one up for us to finish so we can put it to rest? Is it fact or fiction that people with diabetes need to avoid sugar? This question comes up quite a bit for me. Um, and people assume that because sugar raises blood glucose levels, then the, that they need to eliminate or reduce all sugar from the diet. But it's really an oversimplification. So first of all, sugar's found in many different forms and in many different foods. So it's found naturally in fruit, in plain yogurt, in milk. These foods are part of that, those five healthy food groups that we spoke about. And so they have um, important health benefits and they contain important vitamins and minerals um, that have a positive impact on health. Adding a small amount of sugar to otherwise healthy foods doesn't mean that you suddenly need to avoid those foods. So I always bring up the example of oats. You know, if you add a half a teaspoon of sugar to your oats in the morning to make your oats a bit more palatable, it doesn't mean that suddenly the oats are bad for you because as we know, oats have many important health benefits. But Yes, there are some foods that are high in added sugar that don't provide any other nutritional benefits. So when we think about foods like cakes and biscuits and lollies and ice cream, these foods um, provide little uh, important nutrition and they provide a lot of added sugar. Um, and they're not found in the five core food groups. So these foods are part of the discretionary foods. Yes, we can reduce or eliminate those foods from our diet. So there's no reason that we need to continue to include those treat foods, especially not on an everyday basis, because it's recommended that those foods are only eaten in small amounts um, and infrequently. Now, the other thing to remember is that sugar is not the only thing that affects blood glucose levels. So when it comes to blood glucose levels, there's foods that don't contain any sugar that will raise our blood glucose levels. So things like rice um, doesn't have any added sugar in it. And rice, as we know, will rise, raise our blood glucose levels. Same thing with things like pasta, potato, bread. So, you know, these foods contain very little, if any, added sugar 
and yet they still will raise our blood glucose levels. So it's not just sugar that we need to focus on. It's the total carbohydrate and the quality of the carbohydrates we're choosing. And of course, quantity, as we mentioned, is an important factor to consider as well. So, so much more to consider than just sugar. Um, so diabetes and nutrition, obviously, is a really complex area and it can be quite confusing even for us health professionals to really take all of those things into consideration when we're, we're trying to guide someone through um, healthy lifestyle changes to help with their diabetes management. And we can understand, I guess, now that why people get so confused because there's so much information out there and misinformation. Um, and it's really important that as health professionals that we're sharing accurate information with our clients so we can avoid adding to that confusion that they already feel. So Kate, thank you so much for your time today. As we've discussed, there's so many misconceptions about food and diabetes. So to make sure that we as health professionals are providing that right or accurate advice, where can we go for more information? Yeah, look, Melissa, I think you made a really good point. Um, and that's that giving evidence, evidence-based advice is so important because we don't want to add to the confusion or the noise that people living with diabetes already feel. Advise your patients to speak to a dietitian if they have any nutrition-related questions. A GP can refer patients with diabetes using a GP management plan and team care arrangements. What that does is it gives people with diabetes a Medicare rebate uh, for their consultation with the dietitian. You can also hop on over to the Diabetes Qualified website. That's where you can find really great information, resources, webinars, um, and those have all been created by health professionals and experts in the area of diabetes. And another good resource is the customer care line. So um, you can ring up the NDSS and speak to a health professional if you have any questions about diabetes management. Phone number is one three hundred one three six five eight eight. Uh, you can ring that up and you can speak to a dietitian about diabetes. Awesome. So thank you everyone for listening today to our podcast and thank you, Kate, again for your insights. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diabetes and Food Podcast. For more information, webinars, fact sheets and resources, head to diabetesqualified.com.au.